Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Folklands, created, written and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb. Episode 8, The Rectory in Red. Hello, my name's Justin Chubb and together with my friend and fellow writer-performer Tim Downey, we're out and about around the UK exploring folklore, myths and legends on location at sites of historic and atmospheric significance, meeting some fantastic authors and experts on our travels. In today's episode, we visit the most influential place when it comes to supernatural phenomena. The inspiration behind many fictional hauntings, including Shirley Jackson's classic Haunting of Hill House, and the most widely documented site of ghostly activity, Borley Rectory with a slightly curious follow-up. Then we go on to meet Edward Parnell, the charming and much-celebrated author of Ghostland, a delve into spooky Britain, and prize-winning writer for his eerie debut novel, The Listeners. Ed joins us in the sleepy village of Polstead to walk in the footsteps of a notorious Victorian murderer and his victim as we explore the murder in the Red Barn, a strange and gruesome case that once gripped the nation, inspiring plays and ballads, paintings, pottery and trinkets, and attracting a vast number of tourists at the height of its dark fame. You join us on an autumn day, heading out on the road to our first destination. We're back on the road, and we're now 20 minutes away from destination one. Borley Rectory. The most haunted house, well former house, now ruin, in Britain. Well, it's technically not even a ruin, as it burned down in 1944. So it's a series of bungalows on the site of Borley Rectory. So I wonder if be... they have strange hunched figures. Well, I mean, that's probably just a resident. It's an elderly population, I'm told. But um, for any paranormal investigator or anyone interested in anything to do with the weird and the strange, this is where to go. 
you have to come to Borley. The Holy Grail. The Unholy Grail. The Unholy Grail, if you will. The church is supposed to be very, very beautiful, haunted as well. So it'd just be nice to kind of go, soak up some atmosphere, probably get shouted at and looking over a hedge when we really shouldn't. But I think it's going to be fun. Everyone must be round there all the time looking for spirits. There's going to be an absolute cavalcade of podcasters and paranormal shows desperate to try and find, is it the tunnels? Are the tunnels still there? Where's the phantoms? Where was Harry Price? But really is just a field. And someone's bungalow. It's extraordinary they built on that ground. Two or three bungalows. Well, we'll see. So there's a tithe barn on the other side of the road that's mentioned in the Borley Rectory papers. Near the church is where the rectory once was. It's on a place called Hall Road. But again, they're not that keen on giving you the exact location, Mm. probably to keep off people like us. Ghost warriors. Phantom botherers. Yesterday was torrential rain. We have an absolutely clear, beautiful sky with autumnal sunshine. The perfect weather for finding folklore. How lovely to be on the travels again. So is Borley a little town? Originally, it was split into three... So there's like an upper Borley, a lower Borley, and then Borley. And then over time it's been pulled together and the village has grown more. So now it is just Borley, with the rectory and the church being right at the centre of this. From what I've seen, it's very small, very rural. And so something like this happening would have been desperately horrific. Because we're in quite flat, open countryside now. We can see beautiful fields quite a lot of pylons going off into the distance. This is a mecca for people like us. We think we're normal people. We're not normal people. We're not. We're not normal. But for abnormal people like us who are obsessed with spirits, ghosts, interesting things, folklore, this is one of those mythical places that every book that you will read on the most haunted houses... Borley will probably be chapter one. This is the place. This is it. And I think I've just got lost. It's rerouting us. It doesn't want us to get there. No. Welcome to Suffolk, Welcome right? To Suffolk. We've, We've got crossed the border. <laughs> <laughs> We've turned round. Bulmatai. That's a nice name. That feels very spooky folk horror or a good character name for a kind of Hardy-esque yeah the old scryer Boomer Ty disappeared he did long ago now on a sort of winding lane with lots of very beautiful puffy old oaks in autumnal colours imagine travelling here in the 1940s hearing about this extremely haunted house this whole route would set you up for something unpleasant otherworldly you feel you are far away from things here the fields are ploughed and brown in winter and he came here quite a few times I think Harry Price and then of course he took up pretty much a residency for a whole year didn't he 1937 and invited 40 different 
experts, practitioners to come and join in the search for genuine hauntings that could scientifically be recorded. Yeah, this would definitely give you that sensation that you're about to enter somewhere other. Mm, distant copses, not many houses. Yeah, a lot of gaps between things. You'd be easily cut off, I imagine. You know, when the snows come or the rains, you feel very isolated. Definitely. And I'm imagining us coming down in a sort of vintage car at this point. Yes, very sort of... Um, H.V. Morton, who travelled around in his motor car in the 40s before the AA maps were out. Well, we're just about to turn, actually, onto Hall Road. And Hall Road is the road that the rectory was on. And in fact, there we go. There's the sign to Borley. I've got a white, old-fashioned sign pointing to Borley. Bloody, actually, this road. Again, it, it doesn't want us there, Justin. No. It wants us to stay away. So we're going to head to the church, I think is our first port of call. And then we'll uh, have a little wander around. The wellies are packed. We're ready. Borley ready. And the apparition has been seen in broad daylight, so we can only hope. How do you feel about seeing a ghost? Well, as I've said a few times, I think I would love to see a ghost. I don't think I've ever seen a ghost, but I think that might be due to over-enthusiasm. I think you have to be more relaxed. You're not thinking you're going to see a ghost, and then you might see a ghost. Yeah, maybe it's like trying to date someone at school or something. If you're too over-eager, they're like, oh, no, forget it. What I've become is over-eager on the dating scene when yeah. it comes to ghosts. But one day... Could be today. Could be today. I've got a little thrill of excitement. I do. I have as well. That could be the tithe that bar. That could be actually. the tithe bar. This is the church. Harris church. church. Harris church. Right. Okay. Well, we've yes. just found the church on our left. Quite open countryside behind it. I can't see at all where he would park. They don't want you here. They don't want us here. Church. The rectory itself is on the other side. Ooh, going through a low gate. Didn't need to open it. So we're really in a, literally a handful of houses. The church is on a corner of a winding lane. We're walking through beautifully topiered yew quite, trees. They're quite imposing. Very big, tub-like, like barrels. Almost a presence. We think of Algernon Blackwood, the willows. Imagine these creeping up on you. Yeah, you wouldn't want that. So we're now under the tower. The church Jeez. is quite firmly padlocked. And there's a big no-parking sign, obviously ready to keep people away. But quite a beautiful old door. So we're walking around the church. Lovely towers. 
Do you think it's Norman? I think it is, yeah. Very flinty, square. There's some gargoyles up there as well. You can probably hear the wind just rustling through the autumnal trees. It's a bit of a chilly, windy day, but very bright. We've done a circuit of the church. Apparently this church is supposed to be very haunted as well. And the apparition is is said to be Marie Lair, who was a nun, and she has been seen walking in the graveyard here, as well as around the rectory. (laughs) So she allegedly is the main trouble. And there were theories about how was she killed. Was she killed by one of the Waldegrave family who were lords of the manor? Was she strangled? Was she hidden somewhere, her body? Why does she come back to haunt the property? But mm. she's seen multiple times, apparently. It does have an atmosphere to it. I mean, maybe it's just years of reading about the place and knowing a lot about it, but there is... If you're just looking at it as what it is, it's not that spooky, but it's quite close. Everything feels very on top of you. It's like things are too big. They don't sit right. Somehow the fields, which are quite flat, almost seem to be converging towards this point. Like all roads kind of end here. So the rectory would have been... Right next to the church, so I'm imagining it's just sort of that direction, so just past the tower Mm. in that corner... And you think there are now bungalows on the side? Apparently there are now bungalows there. And you can't get in. The locals don't want you around, which I can completely understand. Mm. I mean, they'll have loads of us wandering around. But it is interesting that you would then build on such a famous haunted place. Energies or people even wanting to buy a house that was once the site of the most famous haunting and then burnt down mysteriously. That would also concern me. Yeah, the burning down, apparently there was a seance... Well, should we give a rough history of yes, the why not? rectory? So it was built in 1863 by the Reverend H.D. Bull, Henry Bull, who then subsequently passed it on to his son, who was also called Henry Bull, and he stayed here till 1927. But there were many apparitions, the main one being this nun. I don't know how they found the name, but she was supposed to be called Marie Lair. And when Harry Price was here, they held various seances and apparently did contact Marie Lair, who said that she had indeed been strangled and buried in the garden, but they couldn't find traces of her. Later, in 1937, I think, they dug under the cellar and three foot down, they did find the bones of a woman. But going back to that thing about ethically building on haunted sites, wouldn't there be some sort of feeling that this land has a problem? In Mortlake, there is the site of the John Dee house. Now, across the road from it, so it's right on the Thames, and across the road from it is the John Dee big estate. But when they were building on the other side of the road, where his house is, they have a row of buildings, and then it just stops And there's a wide open area because it felt that the energy on this particular area is worth being left alone. It was very much of a council decision. We will not build on that land because of its history. 
Yeah, that was four, five hundred years ago. Ball is much more recent. And also estate agents have to give out those kind of information, <laughs> you know. Is this house haunted well, before right, I buy? Yeah. Is there a legal thing that people have to do? There is. There is a legal thing where if you have experienced something, you have to declare it. Because if you've bought it and then suddenly something started happening, my keys keep disappearing or poltergeist activity, you mm. could go back to them and say, well, you've sold this under false pretenses, I mean, it false would be advertising. fascinating to talk to people in the bungalows to find out had things happened. Yeah. Because allegedly when Harry Price was there, candlesticks were thrown at his head, vases smashed against the walls, keys did go missing or thrown... Wow. across the room he took another seance where they contacted a spirit that called itself Sunex Amures wow. don't know what that means but the spirit revealed that Bawley was going to burn down on May the 27th 1927 the next day it didn't but then 11 months later on February the 27th a lamp overturned itself and uh, rectory burned down. So it was 11 months, but the same day, 27th. I mean, I have problems with dates as well, so well, got confused, got confused a little bit. especially in this light, this kind of winter light. It's beautiful. Sunlight is absolutely like a slab across the church, and it's very still. There's a caged tomb there, have you seen that? Oh, yes, to keep something in. To keep them in. A witch's grave. Witches would be in the potter's field. That's true, they wouldn't be in a consecrated ground. There's no way around the back, is there? No, no, there's one way in, one way out. There's a little gate... Shall we have another so, look? It seems to be about it. And there's that sense that with these big trees that you just can't see round corners, there could be something. Could be something standing lurking. Watching. I imagine this probably could be the old entrance to the rectory. This would make sense. It would. We're just looking through some trees into the patch of ground. Yeah. There's a sort of stream at the bottom of this part, and I wondered if we could walk around, maybe. We could have a wander into the village. There's not much paving. It's basically a road straight through. Welcome to Borley. It does feel oppressive. There is a... Yeah, the yew trees are very, very oppressive. Very oppressive and disproportionate. And we're looking across open countryside as we come to the gate again. See it? Very large church over there, yeah. across the open countryside. So we're going to walk down into the village and see if we can see anything. It's quite chilly. Quite brisk. That's the tide barn on the other side, photographs that I've seen. It's a cherry tree barn, this is called. Tithe barns were where local people would bring produce to pay kind of taxes, really. 
Ah, now we're next to a village pond. A willow. I mean, it's very beautiful here. But there's an unsettling quality about the place. There's not a soul around. Well, mm. maybe souls, but not people. Mm. It's quite sinister, the pond, the lake, the tithe barn, the church. Oh. Everything's very close together. You see these little houses here? Oh, yeah, let's just go a bit further around. Mm. You know when the houses were built? Maybe 70s, 80s by the looks of things. They don't look particularly old. I think this is probably the place. Kind of feels right in terms of pictures. It does. Initially, the servants all deserted. I think it was the second Henry Bull. His servants saw phantom coaches driving through the dining room and out onto the garden lawn. That'll do it. With some headless horses attached. Yeah, that'll do it. And the gardeners apparently saw the nun in broad daylight with her eyes closed and a sort of woe-begone face. So the servants all said, right, we're out. Keep the money. I think he passed the property on In 1927, I think, the then incumbent contacted the Daily Mirror who sent Harry Price to report one of the senior sort of psychical researcher journalists of his day. And then it began a sort of obsessive thing for Price. I think he probably saw it as, this is going to make my name, because he was a paperback salesman originally, and he married very well. She had a lot of money, so he really pushed being a... Psychical researcher. Say goodbye to the bag. And hello, ghosts. This is going to make my name. It did. He's still really the most successful person in the field, or the most well-recognised name. If you think of ghost hunters, you will inevitably think of Harry Price. And probably in films and TV shows, he's still the name that occurs most often as a character within ghostly dramas. Definitely. I mean, there's the Enfield poltergeist, you know, Maurice Gross or Guy Leon Playfair, but you wouldn't necessarily know their names as much as Harry Price. I'm just going to see if we can go round the other edge of Borley Church. I sort of was hoping we would find a little ruin. A ruin something. Yeah. yeah sadly, that's gone. 80 years next year, that'll be. We're in a sort of field, just skirting around the church. There's a nesting box for some large, Very probably large. an owl. Are your plimsolls all right on this terrain? One has sprung a leak. It happened the other day. I thought that just might have been particularly bad weather, but it's persisting, so it's, yeah. it's something more major. In the fire, during the actual blaze, numerous onlookers witnessed strange apparitions within the smoke, strange figures. They also saw what appeared to be the outline of a nun in one of the top floor windows. And subsequently, even when the rectory was no more, the figure apparently could be seen floating on what would have been the upper floors of the rectory. Maybe that's why the bungalows... So we are standing at the back of the church over an open waste ground which is fenced off. There's an open field, quite nettle-strewn, part of an allotment, but there's definitely the ruin of part of a wall. Very overgrown now, and just left to seed. Wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the rectory. Yeah, even if it was just an outer wall. This feels like the right sort of place. It does. 
I presume rectories were right next door to the churches. Well, I would imagine. You can see the new developments. Let's walk there. down. So there are some new builds. Well, relatively new builds. Probably 70s, 80s. Clustered behind the ground. Because I presume it was probably quite a large property with oh, grounds. Yes. It's all very fenced off. Do not enter. Do not come in. It's just empty. Like, why hasn't this been gardened or cultivated? Who owns it? Because there's little allotments, but there's nothing here. Which almost suggests maybe this was perhaps the main site. Maybe. Maybe they haven't built specifically on when yeah. the actual rectory building was. Maybe. For those very reasons we were just talking about. Yeah. And have you been to the John D place? I have. I remember standing in it thinking, oh, right, this is where he had his stuffed crocodile, this is where he had to escape before the Queen's men arrive and he had to dash off being a black magician. Hide the scrying glass. Hide the scrying glass. It has literally been stripped of everything. And now just, you know, there's a bin in it, just because it's a thoroughfare to get down to the Thames. And is there any marking to say this? No, no marking at all. Mm. The only way you'd ever know is directly opposite, it says John D. House. That's the only way you know, all by looking on a map, just kind of hunting for it. So you're saying John Dee escaped? And ran off to Prague in the mantle of Marlowe's Faust. Marlowe is said to have, if he wasn't murdered in Deptford, gone to Prague. A safe haven for new learning and potential wizardry, witchery. Very famous for it. They welcomed alchemists in a way and then were obviously quite frightened of them as well. Very much. So he was part of Elizabeth's court. His big thing was he predicted when the Armada attacked, oh, and they did, so they kept him around. And then obviously he started doing a lot of Enochian languages and the language of the angels with his, what was his name, Edward Thomas, something like that, I think, Yeah. who was seen to be a con man. And then, yes, he did start an affair with Dee's wife, that is true, but, and a lot of people just said he just made up the language, made up what was seen in the scrying glasses just to kind of be kept around. But there's probably a lot more to it than that. So do we know when he died or where he died, or did he just disappear? I think he was imprisoned for some con or debt. <laughs> Lowly things bring them down in the end. And his alchemical number was 007007, which is where the James Bond number ah, comes from. That's fascinating. I don't know why Ian Fleming would choose that specifically. Yeah. Oh, there's a hair. Hair just dashed off. That's a big one as well. I don't think I've ever seen a hair before. There you go. I'm pleased I was here to share it. Traditionally, was what a witch could turn into. That's right. They are famous for being the seers. They have seen so much. This is a funny place, isn't it? Is. Yeah. Somehow things on corners. I know this is just a road, so it wouldn't necessarily have been on a corner, but there's something about being positioned on a corner that's slightly odd as well. Yeah. Post lady. I expect she'll know. She'll know all about this. I think maybe the Reverend Bull's grave is in here, actually. I've got time for a quick look. We could have a quick little. What's our schedule? Yeah, we've got time. H.G. Bull was the first Reverend who built the rectory. 1863. Seen pictures of his gravestone, so I'm presuming he is buried here. How many graves in here, though? Except this one we can't really read. But it's a 
Kipling, Mary Ann Kipling. There's quite a few Garners over here. I wonder if there's an Alan Garner connection. Wilborough Garner, whose nickname was Tubby. Quite a few Scriveners, and Scrivener is an old word for people who are adept at writing letters. Like a scribe. Yeah. These look slightly older. Some are so old there's no writing left at all. Ah, bull. This is a bull. Can you read that? It's so covered in lichen, can't quite read it, but it's Henry Dawson something bull. And I believe he was the first rector who built oh. Borley Rectory. If it's not him, it will be his son. And this is another bull, but I can't really read it. Caroline Sarah Bull. We found them. That's good. That's really good. Yeah, so the first Reverend Bull stayed for a long time, from 1863 to 1927, when his son took over. But his son didn't last very long because of the ghosts. <laughs> the ghosts will <laughs> not stay here. A lot of horse chestnuts around. Tempted to take one. There Good idea. Go. We're both going to take a little haunted conquer. Haunted conquer. Well, I know if anything does happen, yes. I, know, I know where it's come from. It starts moving around. <laughs> well, there we are, Borley. Peaceful, but slightly creepy. And quite chilly now. Oh, it's, it's getting cold. It's lovely. I've got cold. Yeah, winter is upon us. It is. In a slightly curious follow-up to our trip to Borley, about a week later, I was scrolling through pictures on my phone when I noticed something rather odd in one of them. What seemed to be a strange blue neon circle, like an orb of light. I didn't recognise the shot at first. It seemed to simply be a stretch of open field under a blue sky. And then I remembered, before leaving Borley, I'd managed to take a quick snap. Sure enough, my iPhone had named the location Sudbury Borley, 15th of November. Rather puzzled, I looked back at the live photo, which plays several frames in a continuous loop. Blowing it up, I could see the bright blue orb performing a twisting motion, zigzagging down and out of frame. I was ready to dismiss this as a typical lens flare from the sun, but the light doesn't move in any way like this and whoever I've shown the picture to agrees. It just looks really odd. Orbs of light are traditionally said to appear in photographs taken in haunted places, and I can't help wondering if that's what this could be. Shortly after Christmas, at a good friend Natalie's house, I was showing her the Borley picture when she related a story to me about her father who, as a young man, had become obsessed with stories about the rectory and its ghosts. Ostensibly to get it out of his system, his mother had finally given in and decided to take him to the site. This was during the 1940s when the building had not long burnt down. If the intention was to rid the young lad of his supernatural interests, then the plan rather backfired. 
As mother and son walked round the grounds, suddenly, out of nowhere, a brick appeared flying through the air towards them and crashing to the ground. A famous photograph taken by Harry Price claims to show a similar brick caught in mid-air, though Sean O'Connor's excellent book, The Haunting of Bawley Rectory, expresses certain doubts about the authenticity of both the image and other claims made by Harry Price. Anyway, let's return to our journey, en route to our second destination, on the trail of the murder in the Red Barn. To get us in the mood, here's the fantastic actor Craig Parkinson, best known for major roles in Line of Duty and Misfits, reading The Murder of Mariah Martin, a ballad written at the time which relates the gruesome tale of murder and betrayal. The Murder of Mariah Martin by W. Corder Come all you thoughtless young men, a warning take by me. And think upon my unhappy fate to be hanged upon a tree. My name is William Corder, to you I do declare. I courted Mariah Martin, most beautiful and fair. I promised I would marry her upon a certain day. Instead of that, I was resolved to take her life away. I went into her father's house the 18th day of May, saying, my dear Mariah, we will fix the wedding day. If you will meet me at the Red Barn as sure as I have life, I will take you to Ipswich Town and there make you my wife. I then went home and fetched my gun, my pickaxe and my spade. I went into the Red Barn and there I dug her grave. With heart so light she thought no harm to meet him she did go. He murdered her all in the barn and laid her body low. After the horrid deed was done she lay weltering in her gore. Her bleeding mangled body he buried under the red barn floor. Now all things being silent her spirit could not rest. She appeared unto her mother, who suckled her at her breast. For many a long month or more, her mind being sore oppressed, neither night nor day she could not take any rest. Her mother's mind being so disturbed, she dreamt three nights sore. Her daughter she lay murdered beneath the red barn floor. She sent the father to the barn when he the ground did thrust and there he found his daughter mingling with the dust. My trial is hard, I could not stand. Most woeful was the sight when her jawbone was brought to prove which pierced my heart quite. Her aged father standing by likewise his loving wife and in her grief her hair she tore, she scarcely could keep life. Adieu, adieu, my loving friends, my glass is almost run. On Monday next will be my last, when I am to be hanged. 
So you young men who do pass me by with pity look on me. For murdering Mariah Martin, I was hanged upon the tree. Back in the car after our bawly visit, just leaving the village now. We've gone the wrong way. We're hexed. He didn't want us there in the first place, and now he doesn't want us to leave. We're going to meet the lovely author, Edward Parnell, who did a fantastic book called Ghostland. Yeah, really, really good. And it mixes a sort of journey across lots of areas of the UK, mainly England, and he discusses lots of seminal works of eerie literature that... Tim and I have devoured also. And then mixing it with memory, TV shows and landscape. What the landscape does and gives that sense of English eerie and those hidden corners and just how the landscape ebbs and flows and changes and what different parts of this country give because it's so varied from this part of the world which is quite flat and further east are Fenlands, an area where there almost is no end to the land, the sea and the land merge compared to other parts where there are you know, white cliffs or Cornwall that are very definite ends There is something atmospheric and eerie about very wide open spaces, the fact that you might see a lone figure as in the very famous Jonathan Miller, Whistle on I'll Come to You adaptation there's this figure behind you on the beach or in a wide open space somehow is almost worse than something being close to you. Yeah, Hitchcock uses it as well. In Psycho, there's a bit where Janet Lee is filling up petrol and there's a very wide shot of just her car on its own in the station. And then there's a shot of the policeman on the other side of the road, very wide, but nothing else around, just him. And you realise you can't go anywhere because he can see you and you can see him and there's nowhere there's nowhere to hide he was very influenced in that film particularly by Edward Hopper the painter do you know Edward Hopper? I do yeah I love Edward Hopper the, the house in Psycho in fact was built from one of the paintings of Edward Hopper and Hopper himself didn't see the sinister nature of his painting strangely but they are usually lonely figures or urban landscapes with a lot of space wow I've just driven through a very deep puddle very deep a lot of flooding around here shot you're describing in Psycho there's a very famous Hopper painting of the pumps of a shell garage yes. in a kind of open area again the lone pump attendant. Along the way, as inevitably happens, Tim and I lapsed into memories of spooky films and TV. I walked with a zombie. Yes, I remember this very clearly on BBC Two. BBC Two, late night, I remember watching it and thinking, this is one of the most extraordinary things I think I've ever seen. Yeah, me too. And it wasn't quick, it wasn't full of special effects it was just mood and it looked like a studio yeah the cornfield the sugarcane fields 
when, when the zo- yes, and the zombie kind of looms out and doesn't say anything, but there's a close-up of his face and of her face, mm. and then she's led through the sugar cane to where the ceremony's being had. They used to do double bills, didn't they? Two horror films in one mm. night on BBC Two. That's My so brother cool. and I would always sit down and watch them. And the other incredibly memorable night was the double bill of The Innocents followed by Night of the Demon. I taped them on a VHS and I had that VHS for years and years. We used to have a, a, a VHS tape at home and I used to watch it all the time because my dad really loved 40s Ealing comedies. At the beginning of this tape was a, a Disney cartoon about Donald Duck delivering a, a letter. Hmm. He was a delivery boy to 1313 13th Street. And the house is a house of ghosts. I remember this cartoon. I used to watch it all the time, constantly. And then it led into this Arthur Askey comedy called Backroom Boy. It merges the kind of war effort, this guy who does the pips at midnight for the forces, is then said, oh, you're now going to have to go off to this lighthouse in Scotland. And he gets on a boat and he goes to this lighthouse in Scotland where there's an old lighthouse keeper. And it's, you know, it's a comedy. And then one night there's a shipwreck and the wailing of the people on the rocks to him from the top look like sirens. They look like mermaids <laughs> right. on the rocks. And they yeah. can't quite work out, is this the spirits of the, of the sea? Have they come to visit us, to tell us something? Or, in fact, is it actually a shipwreck that's been torpedoed by the Germans in the north of Scotland? Mm. And those two kind of weird marriages of a Disney ghost cartoon and this kind of old Ealing comedy folklore just kind of blended together that I now can't watch the two without thinking of the other. There's something a little bit creepier almost about some of those very early films. Even watching something like the Will Hay film, Oh Mr Porter, which is someone who's a wheel tapper who's dreadful at his job but his aunt owns the railway says, right, you're going to go off to Northern Ireland to a place called Buggles Kelly and be the station master there. And then there's a a mix between folklore, phantom trains, and again it goes back almost to those stories about Will-O-The-Wisp and smugglers, is these are stories that are told to the locals in order to keep them away from what is actually going on, and it turns out that they are smugglers smuggling things in. And then there's an extraordinary sequence near the end, which is very reminiscent of James Whale's Frankenstein. I don't know if the director even thought of that, but it's all set on a windmill, and they're all riding the sails of the windmill as it goes round, and then it bursts into flames, and it's very reminiscent of the James Well Frankenstein when the Frankenstein's monster goes to the windmill and the windmill burns down. And you think that's a very interesting visual crossover that I wonder if that was even a thought or it even came into play. Talkies came at a time when it wasn't that far away from First World War and after the First World War there was this huge resurgence of interesting ghosts people had lost so many young men and just wanted to believe that they could contact them or that there was something else seances were the thing, everybody was doing seances I remember my grandparents talked about going to loads of different seances and it was just the thing everybody did just reminded me of something which is a very strange crossover there's a smith's song where there's a sample where a voice says you are sleeping you do not want to believe you are sleeping and that is taken from a record from the 1970s 
from a seance. There's a book that was published called Breakthrough about this new technique of contacting spirits through recordings. And they released a little album of spirit recordings that this person made and of these disembodied voices that would be able to be to be picked up with this new technique. And one of the sound bites on that record is that woman saying from a disembodied voice you are sleeping you do not want to believe you are sleeping which they then took and then sampled in that song I didn't know that look at that layers love it love it you are sleeping you do not want to believe you are sleeping you do not want to believe you are sleeping you do not want Approaching Holstead. Your destination is four minutes away. So we're coming to meet Edward Parnell to go on a circular walk to talk about and discover as much as we can about Maria or Mariah Martin. Mariah? I think Maria. Well, ask Edward. He'll know. Maria Martin and the murder in the Red Barn. One of the most famous murders of all time. It's become folklore. It was becoming folklore even before the trial. Somehow it hit a resonance. There was a black letter pamphlet, a one-page sort of tabloid newsletter, sold over a million copies that described the grisly murder, which we will discuss in more detail shortly. But now we're in a beautiful area. Again, big, wide fields. This one on our left is... Got the stalks of a crop that's been harvested. We're going down a tree-lined lane with autumnal trees, banks on either side. And the idea is that we're going to try and follow a walk around some of the sites of this notorious story of murder with some supernatural elements Mm. attached. Hopefully, I've done my research and we should be able to find it. This may be the village pond which iced over and Thomas Corder, brother of the murderer, drowned. I have bought plenty of small bottles to collect water. Oh, I'm so pleased. I'm to say uh, thank you from uh, certain areas that need to be collected. This is a very pretty village. A thatch on our left, a pink half-timbered building, an old red foam box. Red foam box. I don't see many oh, around. We're back home. Where did we say we were going to meet? At the Cock Pub, somewhere here. We're in the village green of Polstead. Here we are. This is the Cock this, Inn. This is it. Hopefully not the Cock Up. There's someone polishing a table in there. Yeah. In readiness for our pub lunch. This is a proper, proper English village. Yeah. Where you just really? know there's some sort of witch cult going on oh, secretly. With, without a doubt. And if there isn't, I shall be highly disappointed. Yes. Right, let's put our wellies on in readiness. Finally going to have a dry foot. Are they damp? Absolutely sodden. Oh, you better change your socks. We don't want you getting consumption. <laughs> the last thing we need is getting trench foot. You've got the map, haven't you? I have got the map. Hi. Dogs love this. They always come and attack it. <laughs> the furry microphone is always popular. 
with our four-legged friends. Yes. There is the church. For whom the bell tolls. Ask not. A car has just pulled out. We think Ed has just arrived. Hi, lovely hey, to meet hello. you. Hi. Hi, lovely to meet you. You too. Thank you so much for coming down. That's all right. Have you been to Borley already? Today? We have. Been to Borley. Oh, fantastic. I went in the summer. I've just written an article about it, coincidentally, that's going to be in the next Hellebore magazine. Yes. And that's the first time I've been, though, but it's somewhere I'd been fairly obsessed with as yes, a kid. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. discussing that, exactly the same. It's a lonely old spot, isn't it, on that ridge? It really is. Yeah. It's got this unwelcoming vibe because yeah. they clearly have been bothered by ghost hunters and... Yeah visitors over the years desecrating mm. the graveyard and various things not that i actually saw anyone when i was there we, we didn't, didn't. <laughs> there's no one there we were saying it's like one of that algernon blackwood story yeah did you find where you thought it might have been the actual rectory well there's that brick building opposite the coach house i think uh, okay um, so that's got a bit of haunted history things could possibly be heard in there just off to the side of that was where the building itself would have been to the left yes there's a little gate that's there's right very tempted to try and go through a little wonder. Yeah. and then nearby you've got Belchamp St Peter I think it is all the various Belchamp villages one of them was where they filmed the hall in Lovejoy which was, yeah. was quite exciting <laughs> Belchamp St Peter I think it is features in M.R. James's story Count Magnus the ah, Swedish set story yes. at the end of it when he's kind of pursued back to Britain he ends yeah. up there and meets his grisly fate That's in right. in that village yes. so James must have been aware of Borley and the story. I mean, James was getting towards the end of his life at that point because I think he died in 1936, so all the kind of Borley stuff was kicking off around about 1930 or whatever. But it, it might have been that, you know, that somehow figured in his work in yeah. some way. I don't know, yeah. in, a, in a very late kind of work. Yeah, yeah it must have done. Right, so our plan is we have a little map. Okay. So we're going to follow this footpath down around the back of Corder's house to where the Red Barn was. Okay past Maria Martin's cottage to St Mary's Church, which is where she's buried. It's about a 12-hour walk. It's a good 12, yeah. 12 yeah. to 16-hour trek. <laughs> well, I'm slightly <laughs> concerned because you've no. both got your wellies on. It's not raining, we're very lucky. Exactly, yes, yeah. exactly. Great, well, I think that's that right, where yeah. we should head, down okay. that little footpath over there. We'll... Excellent. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yep. of your book, oh, thank you. It taps into all of the things that we are fascinated with and read and yeah. experienced as children. Yeah, and... that whole haunted generation yeah. thing, I guess, that we all yeah. belong to. I think to, we're so. so lucky. There wasn't much available, so you had to sort of just... You watched what was on, didn't yeah. you? And you didn't have a choice. I remember one of my favourite programmes as a really little kid. It was when I used to walk home from school for lunch, so I was like six or something. And one of the lunchtime programmes was, do you remember Pipkins? That was odd with Hartley hair and this kind of slightly cadaverous. Yeah, it's just everything. E even the kind of programmes aimed at small children Still were either surreal or spooky or something, weren't they? They're, and they're Oglesworth. I remember it later. Bagpuss was kind of more shown when yeah. I was probably, a kid. How so old are you? I was born in the year that your favourite book, the Reader's Digest book, came out. Ah, so. okay. yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit older, so I, luckily for me, I did get to see some of the older things yeah, yeah, when okay. I was a little bit older, which was great. I thought we'd hit our first stumbling block there, but no. We're following 
a path through a little kissing gate, a squeaky kissing gate. But uh, no, your book is lovely. I'm very sad, of course, and very poignant. It is quite a sad book. <laughs> but that gives it a real atmosphere as well, because you kind of feel as a reader, you're worried about what's going to happen in the same way that there is a dread of reading a ghost story. I think that was my sort of modus operandi. Emma James, in one of his kind of essays he wrote as like a forward to a ghost story collection, he kind of laid out his method for just letting the bad thing slightly kind of show itself at the start of the story, you know, a trace of the skull rising above the surface, Mm. that kind of thing. But then, you know, that gradually, the horror of that kind of coming to the fore as the, the story reaches the end. I wanted a kind of hint early on that you know, there might be something sad going to happen in, yeah. in, in, in this book, and you know, then I kind of unfolded it in that way. I had to keep stopping, though, to go and read a book. Yeah, lots of I people have said that. Yeah. Of, I didn't want the spoiler alert. <laughs> so House on the Borderlands was in my bookcase, but I hadn't ah, okay. read it. So. Oh, so that was your introduction to the William Hope Hodgson swine creatures. And yes, yes, they were great. It's fantastic, isn't it? And then you read that he grew up around pig farms... Maybe he was bothered as a kid or something. Yes. Like, mauled by a pig. I, I read his bedroom was very close to where they would kill the pigs. Oh, OK. So that screaming, that squealing right. swine really must have embedded itself. <laughs> he sort of grew up in Lancashire, or I think he may have even been born in this part of the world, but they ended up in the west of Ireland in quite a remote part of the country. It's obviously the kind of the setting for house on the borderland so there's yeah. a kind of autobiographical bit there with this kind of estate and the forgotten orchards and things the place i visited the house he lived where he wrote it which is in borth on the welsh coast a really lovely little coastal town and i was lucky enough to stumble upon the house that he owned and lived in and the owner anthony very kindly let me in wow. so that was one of my highlights i think incredible Anthony had theories of a local kind of geographical feature that might have been a model for the, the plane that occurs in the, the story. There's a big waterfall near there, which could kind of obviously be the waterfall. So it's interesting how all these kind of topographical features in the landscape mm. must have had some kind of influence on authors and filmmakers, etc., artists. Yes, and Algin and Blackwood's expeditions to the Danube. Yeah, I mean, that they were real things that happened. So the Willows, which is probably his most famous story, it's certainly my favourite of his stories. It's very good. He'd been on a, I think it was a, a trip in 1900 along the Danube near um, Bratislava, where it goes into that landscape that is described so wonderfully in that story myriads of channels Mm. in flood and little ephemeral islands covered in these low spooky kind of willow bushes so he went there not with a swedish companion because his companion's this very kind of terse swedish chap um he actually went with an english guy he then went on a second one a few years later but they did on one of the trips they found a body kind of wedged in the roots of a tree growing at the edge of one of these islands so that, again, is something that directly we can see in the finished story. And I guess the reality of an author going to a place gives it that feel of absolute authenticity because it is partly yeah, a memory. When I'm writing my stuff, I like to visit places to try and capture a bit of the atmosphere. I wrote a novel before Ghostland. Just got it. I haven't read it <sighs> OK, yeah, very listeners. much the listeners. Um, it's set in rural West Norfolk in this kind of very out-of-time wooded landscape. It's actually based on the, the village where my grandmother lived, so which I had really fond memories of going to as a kid. 
I grew up in the Fen, so this kind of treeless agricultural wilderness. So then actually going somewhere every couple of months for Sunday lunch where I could go and wander off around the woods and you just have free reign, that was just incredible to me. And, you know, again, in this kind of landscape with lots of secret history and old stories, there was like a devil's pit that was said to be bottomless. and That's very house on the borderland. Yeah. And actually, just reading about the Red Barn murders... William Corder's brother, who features a little bit in the story... Thomas. Thomas, yeah. He's said to have died walking on ice on a pond and falling through. And now that kind of incident features in the listeners because it's, again, something that I think me and my brother did. As a kid, when we were at my nan's one winter, we walked across ice. If we'd have watched those public information oh, films, God, obviously yes. we wouldn't have done it. But we, I think that was the whole point, though. As kids, you did watch all of those stuff and you still did it. Oh, yeah. It was partly the <laughs> thrill of, yeah, oh, this is let's dangerous. Let's fly my kite near these pylons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or there's that great scene in The Dead Zone, the Stephen King, Christopher Walken film, yeah. where the guy gets trapped under the ice. Oh, is that The Omen? Omen 2 or something? Or is that the when? Omen? He where, right, where he gets actually. all of his schoolmates have wronged Damien in some That's way. Right. Yeah. He does his thing and there they are. Yeah. I don't know if there was a public information film about not playing on icy pits. Definitely should have been. They missed out there. Rated by Donald Pleasant. Yeah. Primary school. We had a little pond out the back because the ice used to set incredibly thick, especially in the in the late seventies, early eighties. And you would take a fork, and they would say, "If you could just break off the ice, that'd be great." And I can remember this one occasion where this girl went out with this fork and was cracking the ice with the fork, and it went straight through her foot and embedded it in the ice. And she was stuck there. And I can remember all the kids kind of running before the teachers got there. And just the pulling out under that kind of 70s buckled shoe of blood as it spilled over the ice. No one did that again after that. Why was she asked to go and um, stick the fork in the ice? Because we had ducks and things like that. Country school ducks. Country ways. Country ways. Oh, look, we're coming to a bit of a deep water. Oh, oh that's timely. We're just passing a stagnant Is that a, pool. A, a dark hooded figure just kind of lurking in the reeds at the back? Oh, please problem. say, please say. Please. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So I suppose we should talk about the murder in the Red Barn since we're on the walk. But uh, oh, the first thing was, is it Mariah or Maria, do we Well, think? I watched as research the other night because I'd had knocking around in my cupboard an old... DVD of the 1935 Todd Slaughter production, Mariah, Martin, or the Murder in the Red Barn, and throughout that they pronounce it Mariah. It sounds a bit better than Maria, doesn't it? For kind of gothic purposes. The fascinating thing about this is how incredibly popular the story became, and that it became almost folklore before it had even concluded. It's kind of interesting to me how the story because it was 1827 that the murder took place, how the story got transmitted around. So there was supposedly something like 200,000 tourists visited this village to see the site of the famous crime. If that is true, or even if you know it's something approaching it, that's, that's 200,000 people who managed to get to the middle of nowhere in rural Suffolk before there were trains or... You know, Cars or Exactly, anything. yeah. yeah. Um, you could either walk or presumably you'd get a stagecoach or something. Must have been in a massive sensation. And then they all descended on the place and kind of... Decimated Ripped it. apart the barn yeah, that we're going to see the site of, hopefully. And turned it into toothpicks. Yeah. Isn't there one thing left which is now in a museum? A shoe or something. Yeah. The only thing, as it was completely... I saw early etchings of what the barn looked yeah. like, like a month later, and it was just on sticks. Yeah. Oh, my God. There. That in itself is almost shocking, isn't it? And the, her headstone was chipped away yeah. until it no longer really Which existed. is something you've probably already seen at Borley today, because obviously all of the gravestones there of the Bull family, yes. they've all been chipped away by oh, souvenir they, hunters. Are they so, replacements, then, the ones that well, are in there? Well, there's just the kind of frames of them. There's yeah, very there's little... No, 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 the headstones yeah. have all gone. There's some inscriptions left. They were similarly taken... Because there's some which are beautiful old headstones. Mm. But yeah. The thing I find most shocking is that as a trinket, you'd buy a toothpick made from this wood. So I'm going to pick my teeth with this bit of wood from the, from the barn where, where there was a, a famous murder that took place. It yeah. seems very odd, doesn't it? <laughs> Just after a lovely meal. Yeah. yeah. Mm, nothing finishes <laughs> it off quite like... I suppose you'd be sitting with your little clay pipe saying, oh, look at this little toothpick yeah. I'm going to use now is from the Red Barn. Yeah. And there were also slightly more kind of upmarket trinkets. So some of the Staffordshire potteries produced these little figures of the barn and actually of William and Mariah Martin. I don't think that many were made and I don't think many of the figures have survived, but a set sold at auction at Bonhams a few years ago for 11 grand, I think. Actually, there was a lot of that kind of macabre pottery that were produced because there's another murder that took place quite near my house just outside Norwich, with another kind of ended in a famous public hanging in Norwich, which thousands it's of people came out. to. Exactly. But that had, exactly. you know, there were, there's pottery figures marking that murder as well, or of some famous chap eaten by a tiger. Early dark tourism. It. Yeah. And what can you have as a souvenir drink? Well, also, I guess, you know, if you're going to pick your tooth with the wood from the red barn and then unwrap a mummy, as they did the Victorians, as an after-dinner treat, they would unwrap mummies. 
Really? So they would bring a mummy in, say, oh, look, you know, uh, Alistair has just been away, he brought this back, isn't that wonderful? And they would unwrap mummies. And they would also eat mummies as well, because they thought that the dust, the skin of the mummy, because it had been preserved for so long, had curative effects. Oh, my God. Wow. So, yeah, Victorians were also cannibals. A little bit stuck in your teeth. Here's <laughs> a murder toothpick for I mean, you. <laughs> yeah. It's a lifestyle choice. So the murder was 1827. She was 25. Mid-20s. And he was younger. He was maybe 23 or something. He was the son of a local farmer. I'm not entirely sure how well off this farmer was. So in the film Mm. version I watched the other day, where Todd Slaughter plays William Corder, Todd Slaughter's this sort of really characterful face. The Yorkshireman? Possibly, yeah. Um, I think he was, yeah. He was about 50 when he took this role on. You know, they've already they've made the character this older man with young, kind of pretty girl. So they've changed the story because actually Mariah herself, I think, had had two kids already she kind of out of wedlock by this point. Children. So yeah. she probably had a bit of a local reputation and things. I but so. this kind of story rewrites her history a bit. Makes her the innocent, younger woman, basically. And I think the Victorian play versions also did that, from what I've read. She was portrayed as quite an innocent girl who'd fallen in love with an older man. And, in fact, that was so different from the truth. William, he had a reputation as, I think, being a bit of a ladies' man. He he had various kind of criminal things he'd engaged in. I think he'd sold all of his father's pig herd That's or right, something. Illegally. Yeah, and then his father didn't kind of press charges. And I think he'd been involved with another even more petty local criminal, Samuel Beauty Smith. Wow, what a name. And he had and he had this nickname Foxy Foxy Corder because he was sly and Foxy he'd he'd got at school I think so he'd obviously had this reputation from a young age of being a bit of a wrongun the brother who we talked about earlier the one who may or may not have drowned in the pond back there he I think he'd had a relationship with Mariah was the father of one of the children yes who had died in infancy there's some debate as to whether that child may have sort of because it died at a young age, whether there was some nefarious goings-on with that. That's right. There was a suggestion that Mariah and William had had a a baby and it had died only a few weeks after birth. But then they were supposed to have gone to bury it at... Ferry, I should think, probably. Yeah. Yeah. But there were no official records to show they'd done that. Yeah. And then it transpired that... Corder was worried that the site of where they had buried the baby was going to be found. So it's a little bit... Yeah, this is one theory, isn't isn't it? That that Mariah had a lot of dirt on William and that she threatened to bring some of this stuff out. Now, whether that was the story of what happened to the baby or her knowledge of some of his... Criminal, criminal dealings. Pig, pig dealings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that she was holding this over him and yes. this was the reason for the, um, the her killing. demise, yeah. But then there's also maybe a suggestion that her sister Anne maybe had something going on with Corder as well and there was a jealousy or Yeah, but you, you should give her part in the story because I guess oh, yes. the let's, supernatural let's, element, yeah. she's the one who brings that about, isn't she? Because she is, yeah. that's right. We're getting quite close. Yeah, so we're in sort of a little copse of trees there's some young oaks and Christmas trees and things around us. Beautifully autumnal as well. So, yes, let's talk about the spooky supernatural. 
part of the story? Well, after Mariah's murdered, she's buried in the Red Barn. Then William goes off, leads this double life. He writes some letters, I think, that he places in the Times and maybe some other periodicals where he's basically in a Lonely Hearts column looking for um, a new lady friend, a new wife, and he, he marries someone, ends up running... Is it like a school for ladies or something? I think it's a boarding a house. A boarding house, OK. On the day of his arrest, apparently he's at breakfast with four ladies in a dressing gown with a watch on the table timing the boiling of some eggs. Well, that's, you know, it's good that he was, as a host, obviously in the boarding house, he, he had good attention to detail for... Airbnb. That, yeah. that's, that's a positive that we can attribute to him. The story goes that he'd promised to Mariah that they'd get married, so to meet him at the Red Barn, or they'd go to the Red Barn and then elope to Ipswich, get married, and all would be well. And she was dressed as a gentleman. Yes, in most versions of the story, I think. It may or may not have been true. He either believed this was the case or it was part of his ruse that he thought that the authorities were going to come and arrest her for having illegitimate children. Um, I didn't know that was a, a, a crime, no. but because presumably half of the country could have been arrested at that point, I imagine. But obviously this was enough to put the fear into her that, oh, God, I, you know, we, I better do something here. So she was worried about leaving in daylight, apparently, because she might be recognised, so he told her to dress as a man. So yes. that's where that part of the story comes from. And then, by some way, they ended up near where we are now, at the Red Barn, yeah, yeah. and um, that's where he did the deed. Although even how he murdered her, I think, is kind of up for debate, and they weren't quite sure. There's that's right. possibly shot her, possibly stabbed her, possibly did both, strangulation. There's all these different... Yeah. Forensics wasn't great back in 1827. Probably not great, so. no. We didn't have silent witness to help us. But no, I think she was dug out of the barn, so there was possibilities that one of the marks on her head was maybe the spade mark of where the her father, father had actually dug her yeah. out. But she was found with the green handkerchief of William yeah. Corder around her throat... So there's an idea that she may have been strangled and then the body also had bullet wounds. So could be all three. Could yeah, a, well, I yeah. guess make, he was making sure, possibly. Sure, could be an Orient Express type thing. Maybe they, they all did it. They all yeah. did it. Different <laughs> ways, just to make sure. <laughs> so now we're standing. Tim, do you think so we're... The Red Barn itself is, if we go through another little style... So on the other side of this, this is like Red Barn House as it is now. Okay. And then on the other side of that is the site of the Red Barn. We're very close. We are very close. But the Red Barn house is disappointing. Well, it's, it looks very nice, but it's it, this kind of modernist... It's the sort of yeah. 70s. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't kept it in keeping no. No, with the whole thing. It's white. There's nothing red There doesn't look there. like a lot of wood that we can go and pilfer to make into toothpicks. Oh, I really want to be happy if we start no. hacking at their door. <laughs> so we're just going to go and see if we can find the site of the actual barn, which no longer exists. As we've said, it was decimated by grisly tourists. So, yes, we started talking right, about the, super, the supernatural. Yeah, so, mm, the, so after the murder, William goes off to London. At some point, begins this new life with his new lady friend in the boarding house. All this time, he's writing back Mariah's stepmother, who's actually only a couple of years older than her, I think. Also, I think, in her 20s. Right. Which I think is possibly where some of the other theories then start to come in of jealousy and various other complicating factors. 
Anyway, William wrote letters home to the stepmother and Mariah's father, who was the local mole catcher, I think. Yes, he was. Yeah. He wrote letters home saying, yeah, Mariah's fine, you know, we're down living somewhere else. Was the Isle of Wight They mentioned? went to the Isle of Wight. Or he yeah. said they were living there, yeah. yeah. He kind of had a cover story that he was putting in place, and I guess back in the day... Other than writing letters, you weren't going to go and meet up with somebody, you know, for the weekend or at Christmas or something. Out of sight was out of mind at that point. So it was presumably fairly plausible as a cover story. But then what starts to happen is that the mother-in-law, who I forget the name of... I think she was also called Anne, confusingly. She had a sister and stepmother called Anne. Yeah, she had a sister who looked very like her, I think. So some of those Staffordshire figures, apparently, all the paintings of the, of the time were modelled on the sister who bore a striking oh. resemblance, which is another slightly ghoulish. Yes. Imagine being her kind of... Yeah, sitting for yeah. portraits of your murdered sister. But anyway, I think it was the stepmother who starts having these dreams that Mariah's been murdered and is buried in the red barn and sends her husband, Mariah's father, to go to the barn and there he sort of starts digging around under a store of grain and the body is found. And this is about a year later, isn't it? Yeah, it's the following year, in 1828. So that's the spooky element, that there were these sort of dreams, which is quite a kind of ghost story trope, isn't it? But it is. I have seen in a book a picture of Mariah's ghost, but I was reading a few of my books this morning, and there aren't references to lots of you know, subsequent sightings or anything like that. So it's really this kind of dream that... Yeah, that's the sort of spooky ...is the kind of element. odd... Now, of course, the prosaic explanation is when we get into these conspiracy theories about what actually went on, when there's all these then theories about Did jealousy. Did she really and, know that she yeah. was there? And actually was she just... somehow involved in... And who knows? I mean, we will never know the truth of no. what actually happened. The sensation that occurred afterwards is the kind of crazy thing, I think. The red barn is around here. I have a feeling it's just a psychic feeling here. or a, a psychic a psychical feeling. feeling. A bit of both. But it's near the spring and we passed the spring a little bit away back. And so the house is there. So the barn would have been on the other side of this fence. Oh, okay. We're standing on a carpet of beautiful yellow autumn leaves. We're looking through a fence into an open field. But yeah, so the barn would have been somewhere around here. Oh, it was green woodpecker just flying up, yes. making its Professor Yaffle from Bagpuss. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always liked the name. I think the name's very evocative, and mm. I wonder whether that's one of the things that attracted people to the story. Of course, you're picturing this kind of red Scandinavian barn, and apparently it wasn't like that at all. It was mm. just had some red tiles on one side of the roof, and then the, the kind of higher part of the roof was thatched. So I don't think it would have been like something you'd see when you're driving around southern Sweden or something. No. Actually, on the map, it has a little thing that says according to them, that it was called the Red Barn because at sunset the light would make the barn very red. So, yeah. again, we don't know. But I'd read about it just being the tiles as yeah. well. it's a bit like the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks or something like that. There's another really good um, gothic film. I think it's a 1947 American film 
called The Red House with Edward G. Robinson, which I don't know if you've ever seen. Oh, but I it's, think I might have done. It's really gothic and it's a story with a kind of rural romance gone awry and an illegitimate child and this kind of lonely house in the wood. There's a lot of elements in that film that kind of figure in my book, The Listeners. So uh, okay. I, I hadn't seen the film when I wrote that book. But, um, How interesting. Apparently that film was based on a slightly earlier 1945 novel. Whether the story had kind of mm. got across the pond and he was sort of thinking of Red House, Red Barn. It, yeah. I, I suppose yeah. Red Room as well, The Shining. It's a good colour for a murder it's place, a very isn't good it? Colour for a yeah. It yeah. is very evocative. And as you say, when you hear that name, you think of a blood-red barn and a horrible thing happening inside it. The yellow barn wouldn't have yellow been as good. Yellow barn no. wouldn't ring too. No. And you wonder why it was such a sensation, because presumably in that era there were murders and grisly, horrible things happening all over the place. So why was it this specific thing? Was it the supernatural element, the dreams? Was it the idea of these young lovers eloping and this being trapped in a barn and tricked into being murdered what was it that made people so excited yeah it's hard to say isn't it i mean i guess like with all of these things and we see it now when we have a kind of a murder or somebody goes missing there's certain cases that the public seems to become really prurient about and have just become a sensation this is in the age of rolling news they'll become a sensation for about a day and then we'll move on but with this i guess you didn't have rolling news what you had you had rolling news in the sense that you'd had a, a daily newspaper and mm. local newspapers and things, but stories might have held their sway for a bit longer, I suppose. Yeah. But yeah. as to what the, the magical factor that made this one take off, I guess it's something to do with the pretty young girl, the loss of innocence, and that's mm. always mm. kind of a popular yeah. thing. And maybe, maybe even something like the rural setting. Yeah. Like, it's not London, no. yes. it's not Manchester, it's not Norwich, you know, it's not these big metropolises where murders go on all the time. The it's, mean streets of Norwich. Norwich. The mean streets of Norwich, to quote, to quote Partridge. <laughs> but it was in this kind of English idyll, in yeah. this place where you kind of where think, well... Maybe you know. safe. Yes. yes. I mean, it's a little bit like Hill House, the suspicions of Mr Witcher. That was sort of shocking because it was a domestic murder where people thought, these are, you know, well-to-do people. These are well-to-do middle-class people. Why and there's a, yeah, the little boy's been murdered. Mm. Again, and that was somewhere kind of round Worcester Way or I something, I think. Bristol, actually, Yeah. That ignited a new threat, a new fear, which yeah. was, ah, the family's dangerous. Yeah. People that we know and trust can kill their children. Which I suppose this was as well, wasn't it? Mm. This, at its heart, this was whatever the true nature of their relationship. They were lovers in some way. This, I suppose, points to that she's been betrayed by this person who she trusted. Did they have both street runners then? Well, yeah. ish, because the interesting offshoot is there were two constables who arrested Corder in London. One was Constable Ayres, who was a local constable to this okay. area, to Polstead. But the other chap, Lee, his next famous case was investigation into spring Jack. Oh, OK, right. So then I was thinking, oh, OK, we're on the trail again. You yeah. Know, things link up, everything yeah. sort of links into new territory because spring hill jack was this series of almost mythical murders about this demonic figure that could leap over walls almost golem like this was this sort of in the east end it appeared in clapham as well so it stretched far and wide and there's some really wonderful drawings in victorian newspapers of almost like an early batman figure with a sort of you know wizard beard 
and a sort of peaked black hat with bat wings that would kind of leap over walls in a single bound. And a lot of it was to frighten people, but then there was also the, the murder aspect as well. That Surprise. was a bit less fun, really. A bit less <laughs> fun. You want to be someone dressed in a bat costume jumping over walls, that's, yeah. a, lot, that's a lot more fun. From John Bull, April 27th, 1828. Murder at Polstead. On Wednesday, Corder was sent under the custody of Lee of Lambeth Street and a country constable named Ayres by the Defiance coach to Colchester. During their journey, the prisoner conducted himself with such levity as to disgust every person on the roof of the coach. At nine o'clock, the prisoner arrived at the George Inn, Colchester. The news of his apprehension had some way preceded him and immense crowds were collected before the inn. The crowd was so great and their anxiety to gain a sight of the prisoner so intense that the officers deemed it absolutely necessary to remove the prisoner to a place of security and to procure a private secure room. He was secured by one hand to the bedpost and the other to his bedfellow, the constable. The jury have returned a verdict of willful murder. The unhappy young man is only 24 years old. He was brought into the room to hear the depositions read and was in so melancholy a state of bodily and mental prostration as to appear wholly unconscious of what was going on. Well, we've seen the void where the barn was. Where all those 200,000 people would have descended. There's plenty of sticks on the floor here. We could we could take a little... Yeah, much like any reliquy. You just sort of say, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's it. That, that was, was on the roof. If you were a kind of Arthur Daly circa 1828, oh, yeah. why get... did you not just go and get some bits of wood from the barn next door? Yeah. Isn't it? Paint it a yeah. bit of red. You're lucky, you. Look at that. Well, you red, you got a red bit, yeah. Even red though the bit. barn wasn't red, the, you know, the, the customers wouldn't have known. Perhaps they had attribution things where they'd take a photo of me next to the barn. Well, it so had to be a little could... sketch, yes, wouldn't it? But... that's true, yeah. <laughs> So he was captured. Did he end up in Bury St Edmunds, I think? Because that's where the, that's the, right. the case was tried. So that's about 15 miles slightly to the northwest of where we are now. And I think it was the Shire Hall that the trial took There was an place. inquest, I think, in the pub in Polstead. So that may have happened earlier, probably after the body was found, I imagine. An inquest in the Cock Inn yeah. where we met. But maybe there's more stuff in there about that. I don't know. We'll that. go and have lunch there, will we? Good. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully all the menu items are kind of themed around I'm hoping, the Red yeah. Barn Murder. You Red know, Barn Burger. Well, apparently the local store has souvenir books of the story. Got to do that then. They charged him with about nine different counts, I think. They didn't want a mistrial, so they kind of covered all bases. I suppose all of the confusion about the method of death, whether it was shooting, stabbing, strangulation. I don't know exactly how the the charges were worded, but it Mm. seems as if they covered all of that. William kind of pleaded with the jury that he hadn't done it or he'd done it in accident. They had an argument. Yes, he had stolen some of the child maintenance from her surviving son, the son of a chap called Peter Matthews, a local polstered oh, chap. That's right, and he sent money to keep his son. Yeah. I think William had nicked it 
they were having an argument ostensibly and he said accidentally he shot her he killed her yeah as as you do and then ran away having buried her or concealed her in the in the barn But I think initially at the trial, he said they'd argued he'd left. He had been walking away from the barn and heard a gunshot. Probably this route, because this is Martin's Lane. This will lead us to her cottage. Right. So the chances are... She came up here to meet him, or however it worked. So we're actually on the path that they would have taken to the barn. It's a bit of a hollow way, isn't it? It is. Robert McFarlane would love it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are trees sort of meeting overhead as we walk down. I would imagine this would have been quite romantic. Yeah. Leaves in full bloom, the smells of spring. You think, okay, this is a new life that's going to happen. In Ipswich. In Ipswich. (laughs) That famous phrase. And we don't really know what Mariah's character was. She was supposed to be very attractive, wasn't she? Yeah, the pictures of her were meant to be kind of modelled on her sister who was said to look like her. So it sounds as if the, the, the drawings that you can see, if you Google her, are reasonably accurate. But now going back to the trial, so William pleaded with the jury that this was accidental in some way, but I think they saw through that and found him guilty in about half an hour or something. And he was sentenced to be hanged in Bury St Edmunds. And this was another huge event... 10,000 people were said to have crowded into the surrounding area to watch this. And then with this whole kind of fascination for macabre souvenirs, I think the the hangman had the right to claim the rope. And he got the trousers and the stockings, apparently. Don't know what you would necessarily I guess, do with them. I guess you would sell all of them. So the rope yeah. was chopped up into like little one-inch strips and sold for a, a pretty penny. William was then cut open and displayed with his sternum cut open and and people filed past to look at this before TV and the internet. (laughs) Great entertainment. It's unbelievable. Was this to see what an evil person looks like inside? What was the idea of that, do you think? maybe, or just an eye-for-an-eye type thing. His body then was used in medical research. It's almost um, more grisly. I was reading what they did afterwards to him. As you say, the Cambridge scholars and physicians did a post-mortem. Yeah. He was cut up. His skeleton was put on display in the West Suffolk Museum. His arm would move with a mechanism when you approach the skeleton and point to the collection box so you could put (laughs) money into the box. (laughs) Before they did the post-mortem, they attached a galvanic battery to the body. Oh, that's right, yeah. To make his muscles and his limbs move. The chief surgeon kept the scalp of William. Yes which was then put on display later, I think, in Oxford Street. A scalp with an ear attached. Yeah, and you could still see the hairs. They were still growing after he died, but apparently that's just... Because the hairs are present under the skin, and because the skin shrinks, it would give the appearance... Yeah. I mean, can you imagine? It's such an odd idea, isn't it, to want to go and look at something that macabre and that, that that's obviously a very public place to go and like the equivalent of going to look at the Christmas windows Hamleys or something going back to the trial her body was brought to the trial oh right it okay. was actually brought into the room a year or so probably oh, wow. more after the death so well, this is the body and this is what this is what you did so this public it's display yeah. is just all over it and yeah. funny we should say that because this is her cottage it's quite a large cottage 
thatched, old, tumble down, very quiet little corner right by the edge of the road, which would have been, I well, guess, quiet apart from the the man streaming. They always used to do that. <laughs> it's probably like the final scene of Fargo, where he's probably stuffing a body into a <laughs> into the chipper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly that. But quiet. Everything's very mm. far apart, spaced out. It was called Martin Road or Lane. Martin's Lane, anyway. After, uh, before anyway, or afterwards, yeah. right. Parents must have had some wealth or some renown in the village, or maybe they were founders of the village, but this has always been called... There were a lot of moles. Mole catching was... <laughs> That's the business to get into. Yeah. So, yes, it's a beautiful picture, postcard, cottage in a little valley, a sleepy place. Mm. I suppose that does bring back what we were just saying, why were people fascinated by this particular murder? Yeah that it's almost like a lovely story of these two young lovers who are going to elope and have a fantastic future together and then it turns into this grisly horror. Yes. Like with us walking around it now, the very thought of something so calculated and grisly happening here doesn't seem right. The East End of London, yes. Yeah. The bells are ringing. bells are ringing. Right, we've got a better view of the cottage now, actually. It's beautiful. It's quite big, actually, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Whether it was more than one family living in it or... It's a lovely russet plaster underneath the thatch. There's a few red tiles poking through on that far roof. There are. Or reddish tiles. Yeah. Uh, Septic tank in the foreground. There's a couple of bodies under there. (laughs) Yes, well... Don't worry. It must be funny to live in a house, though, that has a history. Quite near where I live, there's where Dennis Nielsen did all of his horrible murders in Muswell Hill and there's a history to these places what happens and we were talking earlier on the way here about Dr D John D's house which is now a space you know no one wants to build on something that has that history and I think the same isn't the same in Gloucester with um, the West's house is just was just demolished and there's there's nothing on that or there's nothing there no or maybe a playground or something too many echoes I mean it would be Horrific to think of living somewhere where those things had happened, really. Those are the kind of grisly Victorian-style stories, I suppose, that haunt our generations, really. You know, half of you want to know the details simply to try and understand what has happened, but half of you doesn't want to know anything about it. Yeah, I mean, there is a kind of an attraction, isn't there, for these kind of grisly cases? And I suppose by knowing about it, maybe there's a sense that you're inoculating yourself against something like that happening to you or your loved ones. Or understanding the psychology of people and how they themselves are maybe victims of a much longer sort of series of abuses that cause evil, in inverted commas, to take place. So where are we now, Tim? So we are walking down now to Bell's Corner. And if we were to go right then we will go up to Corder's house. But we're actually going to go left, across a field and into St Mary's Church. And that is where Mariah Martin's grave is. Well, it's not there anymore, due to, again, souvenir hunters chipping away at it. But there is a little plaque there on a shed to mark this is the place where she now lies. And did you say you were coincidentally researching this? A friend of mine who's a crime writer i think her first book ruth dugdall was a kind of retelling of this story so um i do remember reading that yeah quite a while ago and my novel the listeners it's set in 1940 but it has a kind of similarly east anglian rural setting i suppose so and are you working on material at the moment i'm working on a 
proposal for another non-fiction book. It's, it's going to be another sort of mixture of travel writing and um, memoir and cultural criticism. Not quite so much spooky kind of stuff going on with this one. Whereas Ghostland, I concentrated on the UK. Um, this one's hopefully going to take place a bit more globally, a bit more okay. around Europe. I've also got ideas to write a, another novel and something that's perhaps got a few more kind of supernatural elements in. I just need to um, oh, yeah, go on. pull my Please. writing finger out and get on with it. <laughs> so now we're crossing a beautiful field which curves gently upwards to a church with a Norman tower. Looks quite flinty from here. And we're going to go up and see if we can find Mariah Martin's grave. Apparently too. it is on a shed. Yeah, I read now that. From, now from this distance... When I see that shed ah. in particular, that almost looks like they've gone, why don't we put it on the shed that looks a bit like, a, like red a red barn? Yes, the, the, the shed with the red roof tiles. That's exactly. It. Come on. It's what you'd have wanted. It's what you would have wanted. I'm hoping there's a sort of 1970s quite bad dummies inside with oh. a reenactment. Oh, that would, maybe they could sort of have a, an animatronic thing, a bit like, you know, it, the, the hand the could hand. point when you approach. Oh. Little mouth moves going, you are here now to experience the murder in the red barn. Put 50p in the slot. That's and, right. Yeah. So then there was the thing about his skull as well, do you know? About oh, this? yes. So obviously his scalp went off and was put on display. The thing that to me is the most gruesome souvenir is that the surgeon had his skin tanned. Yes. And then that was used to bind a fine copy of the trial proceedings, I think. Oh. Um, and that's also in Bury St Edmunds Museum. About 15 years ago, there was a, a robbery in Leeds. Right. And some books were stolen. And they found them later under a hedge, just like near Headingley or somewhere like that. And they opened the bag... And they were books bound in human skin. Oh, my God. So the idea of binding perpetrators around their trials isn't unique to that. They were all trial books. Trials and then bound in the, in the skin of the person who did it. And they were all sort of 19th century. Yeah. Or, right. Yeah. I suppose, you know, Madame Two Swords and the Chamber of Horrors. Did yeah. you ever do that as a child? I certainly remember there? going to the London Dungeon... When I went, it was all these kind of medieval torture practices. And, yes. and there was an exhibition on demons when I went as well, which Ooh. had, I remember they had some projections of film onto this huge statue of a demon and amazing sound effects. Oh, and it was, it was brilliant. I remember the Crippin. Okay, that's what I remember. And the bath of blood. Yeah, strongest. the bath of blood and him wiping his hands with his little glasses. Yeah right next to it. I remember that vividly. I suppose when you're a child, you're much closer to being an animal in spirit. You know, the psychology of killing someone or losing a loved one, those things are not there to complicate. Maybe people's reactions as well. There's nothing more tantalising to yeah. a kid when someone says, oh, no, don't look at that. Don't read that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, that's the ultimate. Do you think, I'm absolutely going to read that. Yes. I want to know exactly why that's provoked a reaction. <laughs> are we all the naughty children, then, that are interested in these things, perhaps? I think there's definitely an element. <laughs> so now we're entering the churchyard. And I'm imagining the first place to go is that... We're going to the barn. barn. Mini yeah. barn. Yes, yeah, so g going back to the skulls, a collector, a doctor who collected memorabilia from the red barn collected the skull when it was taken from the skeleton and kept it but then 
lots of disastrous, terrible things happened to him. Oh, okay. So he felt it was cursed. Right. So he gave it to one of his friends, whose life then went into terrible, tragic circumstances as well. Yeah. So they ended up giving the skull a Christian burial. There were death masks made, weren't there, of William Corder as well. And so you can kind of see an approximation of his fate. Sort of celebrity, in a way. Yeah, I think as well, sort of phrenology, that kind of study of head shape and the bumps in the head and how that affected personality. The secrecy is very, you know, in the the school, very high in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we always knew he'd end up this way. I think it was Beauty Smith who said at some point before the murder, one day he will hang (laughs) prophetically. Right, so we're at the barn. At the barn, so we can see some plastic uh, watering cans. Sort of mini red barn, yeah. but no plaque so far. Maybe they've moved it. Potentially, someone's just nicked it as well, a souvenir. That yeah. would seem to be the most likely. It'd be very on brand. Yeah, exactly. Just... Given the track record of anything connected <laughs> yeah. with this. If case. there's toothpicks at the cock in, we'll, <laughs> we'll know. There's a lot of mole hills in the graveyard. I wonder how you catch a mole. I think it's quite a gruesome process. Oh, really? Yeah. Another grisly thing. Yeah. All sorts of digging and putting down poisoning and. Flooding right. and gassing and spikes cut it, and cut it horrible yeah, well, stuff. I'm starting yeah. to suspect her father now. Well, he had the tools for it. Chipping away up there at the top of that tree is a great spotted woodpecker. Oh, so spotted. our second woodpecker of the day. Do you know what? Lovely. I don't think I've ever seen a woodpecker. It's very vocal, isn't it? It is, yeah. Wow. Beautiful. So right at the top of the tree, black and white. Black and white with a little bit of red on its kind of undertail. And you've always been into bird spotting. Is that something your parents did? Um, or My granddad was a sluice keeper. I talk a little bit in Ghostland about Graham Swift's novel Waterland. Yeah. My grandfather was essentially kind of like a character straight out of that. He was very much into wildlife. So I, I suppose as a young kid, we'd drive around the little local sort of roads on a Sunday afternoon trying to spot herons or barn mm. owls and things. But he's still going, the woodpecker. He is, but you can't hear the hammering. No, and he probably won't be doing that this time of year. That's more of a sort of spring display thing when they do it. Is it? Yeah. It's not to find grubs and things in there. There's a bit of that, but when they do that real sort of that evocative sound you sometimes hear on the the film soundtrack or something to kind of mark that we're in a primordial forest, that's usually the kind of the springtime, the male doing it to attract a mate, basically. It would be a Black & Decker showing off a bit. I can make shells. I'll build your nest. It's maybe a bit like Borley, one of those things that people are a bit wary 200 years on of commemorating. It it seems a bit ghoulish, possibly. Yeah. There's a picture of it. Ah, it looks very similar. I think it's been moved. That. I think that's been moved. The, the reason there was a, a plaque on the shed is, they'd say the gravestone had been chipped away, yeah. and that's kind of the rough area where she was buried then, I think. It's a lovely location, isn't it? Surrounded by undulating soft hills and trees. It probably hasn't changed a lot since 1828. Oh, no. I could try this door. Ah, oh, it is open. Bits of medieval wall painting under the oh, yes, look at under that. the whitewash. Sort of cartwheels, aren't they? There's always that nice musty churchy smell. Yeah. 
We've got lovely autumnal light spilling in from the windows near to the very large timbered beams. And then these kind of rounded brickwork archways. We're always hoping we'll find a sort of little old lady polishing glasses that can tell us local legends. Sometimes in in these woven kneeling mats, you get little bits of local folklore and stuff. When I was down in Cornwall recently, there were some good ones in in Zena Church where there's the carved mermaid and things. Just maybe they've snuck in a a red barn one. (gasps) Let's have a quick look. There's a lovely one of a farmer sowing seeds... Some fishes, angels. I mean, it's probably <laughs> a little bit too grisly. There is a, on, the, on the wall a memorial to a George Martin. I know it's spelt slightly differently, but I've seen... So it was, it was Mariah Martin, wasn't it, with an E-N. M.R. James actually spells it Mariah Martin, but that might be he just made a mistake. But there doesn't look to be any obvious no. memorials. Sometimes they have a little guidebook you can buy and that has a bit of local history in but they don't want strangers here <laughs> what's going on there is on the a gospel oak just on the other side oh of the church i've never really thought about the origin of the gospel oak but that was where they would preach yes so they, they lost the original oak and then the replacement was sown from an acorn from the original which is sort of pagan connection isn't it really mm. nature And maybe originally before churches, missionaries and people would have used a local old yew or oak to maybe preach to people. Where was it? Was it in Benin where a tree was cut down? And the tree in the centre of that particular town was where all the slaves were taken. And from there they were then moved to the New World. And someone in the middle of the night, much like the Sycamore Gap, just came and cut it down. And it's to national uproar that this tree has now been felled. So that connection to land and history is still extremely prevalent. Well, look at what happened with the Sycamore Gap, the amount of mm. uproar. And do they know who cut it down, was it, no, to say they, they don't, don't want the they, connection with the slaves? They don't or, know. They don't know. They don't but know. it's a big political thing. Like Even the president hung a lot of his presidential campaign around the history of the country and that tree. So, and it's still used as shade and people go and sit in it and still it's, so it's very much a part of the community, as I guess, as you can still see here. It's a bit wicker man. People, we've got a photo of lots of locals standing in a field. Ah, here we go. Ah, there is a guide. Okay, so that that wheel is a wheel of fortune, which was a sort of medieval motif that you see in in various churches. Those pillars with the bricks, they're Norman. Bricks date to around 1160. They're currently believed to be the earliest English-made bricks in existence. Good Lord. Wow. If only they built new houses like that. I know. Get some of those for the kitchen. I'm (laughs) glad you do the generic Cornish burr for everything as well. (laughs) Going back to the... The Welcome to St Mary's Church Polstead leaflet. It says, keep an eye open for the wooden plaque on the wall of the shed, indicating that nearby is the grave of Mariah Martin, the famous Red Barn murder victim. Buried in 1828, her headstone was chipped away by trophy hunters and nothing remains of it. So it would have been there. It would have been there, but it's another mystery. Gone. But not forgotten. On my way here this morning, though, I drove through maybe the, the site of Suffolk's most famous bit of folklore. So I came through the village of Woolpit, oh, which is yes. home to the famous Green Children, that kind of 12th century tale. It's, it's a weird tale. It's, it's very strange. Uh, so Woolpit's a, a tiny little village just to the 
east of Bury St Edmunds. Woolpits, actually, the names derive from Wolfpit. There's some sort of shallow indentations on the edge of the village which might have been for catching wolves when they used to dig these right, pits for gosh. them. So there's lots of place names that commemorate wolves, which is one of the mm. Anglo-Saxon names that kind of show that wolves were still present at that yes, point. Yes. So... Um, I guess at some point there were wolves in Suffolk. Anyway, at some point in the 12th century, these two children with green skin emerged into the fields. And there's two versions of the event, one by a chronicler called Ralph of Coggeshall, I think. But they're, they're slightly different, these two versions. But the gist of it is that these two children emerge from hole in the ground on the edge of the village they speak no English they've got green skin the only food they'll eat is green beans I think it's the boy dies not too long after in one version story the girl years later marries a man from King's Lynn in Norfolk and has children that was the bit that really kind of grabbed me with the story of oh my god well then there must be descendants somewhere there's talk in the story that when they've learnt to speak and converse in English, they tell of, in one version, how they came from St Martin's land, I think they refer to it as. So it's this kind of otherworldly kind of fairy world. So it's often taken as a, an example of kind of fairy folklore. Kind of prosaic explanations might be that these were some foreign children because there, there would have been various kind of medieval trading markets that might have come over from the low countries say and then got lost so hence they didn't speak English I don't know how it explains the green skin there's kind of it's like a sunny delight yeah maybe they just ate broccoli they they obviously (laughs) like their green beans so maybe they just ate too many of them I think people have even done studies in all this kind of stuff but it's a Mm. it's an amazing story yeah Um, and there's another bit of Suffolk folklore on the coast at Orford which has got this wonderful medieval castle which is actually used in um, Witchfinder General. It's, I think it's, it's briefly there as a, an external shot in, oh, the, good. in the Vincent Price film. A similar kind of timescale, I guess. Um, another medieval story of a wild man who was caught swimming just off the coast there in a sort of fishing net. And then, again, he didn't speak any English. They sort of tortured him and as the way that they were wont to do in those times. Yes. Anyone a bit foreign didn't really help, didn't make him kind of any, any more conversant. They kept him in the castle as kind of almost as a bit of a pet, I think. They would occasionally, I think, let him go for a swim because I think sometimes it gets told he's a kind of merman, but I think he was just a, a wild man, so he didn't have fins or scales or anything, but he was obviously like swimming. Eventually, he got out and swam away. They kind of let their guard down, but it's another really odd, mm. odd story. To Corder's house, which is just ah. on the other side of this bridge. It's quite an impressive village pond, actually. Yes. This pond could be another candidate for the, the icy. I think it's probably more likely, don't you, really? If the house yeah. is here. Yeah. Well, wow. okay. this is Corder's house. So we've got very pale half timbered building with probably modern mullion windows, I think. But Nevertheless, tree in the garden, and then it's got a little add-on as well. Yeah, sort of. It's a bit of a red barn. It is a bit of a red barn. Yeah, there's a theme here. Sort of looks to me like quite a wealthy house again, doesn't it? 
Well, that's probably got a lot to do in it as well. When you got rich poor, mm. people are very much inclined in that time period to go, well, if a rich man has said it, then we've got to believe it. Yeah. That's his word. He's given his word as a gentleman. Well, I suppose. Well, yeah. that's certainly the, the story that's peddled in the 1935, the Todd Slaughter film version, and say where they make the, he's very much the country squire who's, you know, in his 50s or whatever. So they were playing up that class difference and age difference. Presumably, seeing the state of his house, there was then a class difference. So yes. Thomas was from a better social status than the the mole catcher's daughter i guess that goes with the fact that he's having a debauched breakfast in his dressing gown when he's boiling his egg (laughs) whereas you maybe wouldn't get that in a sort of more rustic you wouldn't be timing your eggs no you just you'd instinctively know you would that is a barn it's definitely a barn he could have saved himself a walk and just done it there. He could, he? actually, yeah. No, he chose well with the name, I think, to give the story legs. Having the red barn was one of those key ingredients. It's, it's that true. name, I'm it's sure true. of it. The judge, William Alexander, who was the Baron Exchequer, and he was the judge at the trial in Bury St Edmunds, he was very critical of the press coverage, saying, like you would today, for a jury, they're being swayed, obviously, yeah. by all of this tabloid frenzy of... His guilt is going to be obvious to them. Yeah. Then. What can you do? Nothing changes. It's a lovely village, though. It's, it's very really pretty. beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. And this distinctive kind of ochery colour, this mm. orangey colour that lots of the cottages have. Is yeah. That guy with a strimmer is making an absolute fortune. <laughs> he he is. follows around this He's entire village. Following us everywhere. <laughs> So the village sign just has the church. There appears to be no red barn on it, unlike yeah. Woolpit, which I came through earlier, does, does have, have the two little yes, children, does. the Doesn't two it? green children on, yeah. So we've crossed the village green, and we're just going into the local Polstead community shop and post office to look for a leaflet, hopefully on one of those revolving stands, I'm hoping. With some ladybird. The red barn. There we go. That's a little souvenir, seeing as we don't have any wood. So we found rather a good leaflet. A bit of corder skin. Not actually a bit of corder skin in the shop. No. That would be... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that absolutely. With clear. free skin. Yeah. I always have a look at books, yeah, just absolutely. in case. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, charity shops are not what they used to be in terms of very nice old books, really, are they? Sometimes you can strike it lucky. I found a second edition of Sheridan Lefanu's um, The House by the Churchyard when I was on holidays in Exeter for a few quid. Great. Running out the shop before they (laughs) realised. Yes. Although it's been there for 30 years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Lefanu was M.R. James's favourite ghost story writer. With good reason. Yeah. Green tea. Yeah, exactly. One of James's last stories, a vignette, which is the one that's quite autobiographical. Where he sees the face through the, the gate. The face through the, through the gate in his childhood home in um, Great Livermere. The child in that tells us that he's just been reading The House by the Churchyard just before mm. he sees the face. So maybe he's just scared himself by reading spooky stories. But it's a nice little nod to, yeah. to that, I think. Right, we've come to the cock in and I'm going to turn off the recording now. I think we've got enough talking.
Folklands was created, written and presented by Tim Downey and Justin Chubb. With music by Justin. Many thanks to Edward Parnell, whose books Ghostland and The Listeners are available now. Do join us for more sinister adventures. But meanwhile, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.